Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Countdown, The Colbert Report, NPR, The Onion Radio News, Ring of Fire, Betty Bowers, and The Young Turks. jihad by fundamentalist crusaders who believe that murder is justified, their acts of violence having the intended effect of changing behavior. Our fifth story in the countdown, not the Taliban, not Hamas, not Al-Qaeda. If the brutal murder of Dr. George Tiller, the Wichita OBGYN, who among many other things provided abortions, does not qualify as an act of domestic terrorism, what does? Dr. Tiller having been gunned down in the vestibule of his church where he had been serving as an usher. His medical practice having been targeted many times before. In 1986, a bomb exploding on the roof of his clinic, he reopened. In 1993, Dr. Tiller shot in both arms by an anti-abortion activist. He returned to work. Two months ago, Dr. Tiller acquitted on charges that he had performed 19 illegal late-term abortions in 2003. Kansas law permitting late-term abortions when two independent doctors agree a pregnant woman would be irreparably harmed by giving birth. Abortion in this country legal for the past 36 years. This man accused of deciding which laws apply and which do not. Police arresting Scott Roeder in connection with Dr. Tiller's murder. NBC News having learned that Mr. Roeder is a member of the Freeman Militia with a previous 1996 conviction for possession of materials to make a bomb, who reportedly posted on the blog of the anti-abortion group Operation Rescue. Police finding the phone number for the senior policy advisor for Operation Rescue, herself convicted 20 years ago of conspiracy to bomb a clinic in Roeder's car. Attorney General Holder directing the U.S. Marshals Service to increase security at Planned Parenthood and other facilities around the country to prevent related acts of violence. In April, an assessment from the Department of Homeland Security having warned of the threat from right-wing extremists, including, quote, lone wolf extremists capable of carrying out violent attacks. One passage warning that right-wing extremists, quote, may include groups and individuals that are dedicated to a single issue, such as opposition to abortion or immigration. The outcry from Republicans so vehement at that point that Homeland Security Secretary Napolitano apologized for the report. Conservative blogger Michelle Malkin, among those who believe the report was referencing her, complaining of being targeted by a, quote, DHS hit job. In March, Ms. Malkin having linked, quite literally, Democrat Kathleen Sebelius to Dr. Tiller after the governor of Kansas had been nominated by President Obama to be Health and Human Services Secretary, Malkin citing, quote, her abortion extremism and ties to late-term abortionist George Tiller. When Mrs. Sebelius was confirmed, Malkin having alleged that the HHS secretary had, quote, lowballed the amount of campaign cash she received from infamous abortion doctor, George Tiller. Today, Ms. Malkin decried, quote, the thoroughly evil, cold-blooded act of domestic terrorism, yes, terrorism, not extremism, that killed Dr. Tiller, making no reference to the previous links she had made on her blog. Anti-abortion groups calling Dr. Tiller, quote, Tiller the killer, still calling him, in fact, that blaming the doctor for his own murder. We don't have the ability, like God himself, to control people as if they were robots. But the point that must be emphasized over and over and over again, pro-life leaders and the pro-life movement are not responsible for George Tiller's death. George Tiller was a mass murderer, and horrifically, he reaped what he sowed. Well, you heard Randall Terry, those who believe in God are robots. Uh, time now to call in our own analyst, uh, Richard Wolf, the author of Renegade, The Making of a President. Richard, good evening. Good evening, Keith. We were to tonight discuss uh, your book. Events obviously have overtaken those plans. We'll do yes. so another night this week. Uh, Thank you. The Homeland Security Secretary, Ms. Napolitano, uh, bowed to Republican outrage in April, apologizing for that DHS assessment that warned of violent acts by right-wing extremists. Uh, are the Republicans in Congress still of the belief that the, the threat of right-wing extremist violence is some sort of fantasy out of the Obama administration? Well, Republicans in Congress want to have it both ways. They want to uh, uh, endorse the goals and aims of, of that movement and not be seen to endorse the results of that movement. And, and it strikes me as very curious that people who claim to have a zero tolerance for those who incite Muslim terrorism, who incite that kind of hatred towards uh, uh, America, find it very easy to turn a blind eye to people who incite hatred and violence. 
uh, towards Americans who are going about their legal work in America today. And there is a direct link. And just to uh, cite someone who maybe has some experience of violence in America, John Lewis, remember when he said in the mm -hmm. campaign, when those people at the McCain rallies who were saying, kill him, uh, about the now president of the United States, John Lewis said there is a direct link here between those who fan this kind of mob sentiment and the violence this country has seen. You know, they need to look clear, closely in the mirror today and say, have I played a part, no matter how small, have mm -hmm. I played a part in what has ended up as a very sad event for one man and his family? We saw uh, Dr. Tiller obviously come up in the, in the nomination process for Sibelius. The GOP is not going to bring this up in connection with abortion and, and Roe v. Wade and Sotomayor, is it? I mean, this is now third rail stuff, is it not? Well, the name is, but I, I don't think the fortunes of the Republican Party are nearly strong enough to say to this hardcore piece of the base, and I'm not talking about those who would embrace violence, but those who embrace the goals of that movement, uh, it, it's not strong enough to say, you know what, we condemn this. And, and that's why uh, our ears are ringing with the silence uh, of the condemnation here. Yes, people lament the violence and the death, but they actually try and justify uh, these acts by saying that the man was evil or committing horrendous acts. Again, he was within the law, and if you want to change the law, then you should debate the law, not go out and incite hatred. And if you incite hatred, you lead to violence. Is the ember of common ground that uh, the president seemed to have reached at Notre Dame uh, trying to lower the number of women who could possibly want or need abortions, is that ember cold now, or is there still some hope for some middle ground? Well, I think this debate is really playing out not at the extreme here, but in the middle. And uh, there is common ground there because actually if you dig underneath the labels, whether people say they're pro-life or pro-choice, people don't like abortions. And there are medical professionals who are engaged in this kind of health care who don't like abortions. So there is, there is middle ground, but you have to strip out this emotion. If there were any good out of this, it would be that people could separate that emotion from the actual people involved here, something mm -hmm. tells me that's just not going to happen, that this will only increase the emotions involved. And obviously, as you pointed out, this starts in Kansas with one man and his family and those who believed in him. Mm -hmm. But in the bigger context, as an event on the landscape of politics, did this change the picture? Did this hurt one side? Did it hurt both? What did it do? Well, I would like to think that it hurts the uh, extremists in all of this. It makes them seem uh, less part of the mainstream. And frankly, what we've seen is an effort by conservative commentators and some Republican officials to make it seem like mainstream opinion supports this kind of thing. It doesn't. It needs to be separated from the mainstream. But most importantly, uh, these extremists need to be caught and stopped. And those who incite hatred need to stop that too. Into Nashville, Tennessee But you wouldn't even come around to see me And since you're heading up to Carolina You know I'm gonna be right there behind you Cause I always have to steal my kisses from you I always have to steal my kisses from you have to steal my kisses from you. I always have to steal my kisses from you. Now I love to feel that warm southern rain. Just to hear it fall is the sweetest sound of thing. And to see it fall on your simple country dress. Fly heaven to me, I must confess. They say you shouldn't be afraid of the dark. I agree. It's comforting in the dark because you can't see all the stuff that's going to kill you. This is the threat down. <laughs> threat number five, charity. We all know the importance of charity, folks, but the real reward is when you look into your accountant's eyes and tell him you have a deduction. But sometimes charities turn evil. Blonde lady, fox and friend. This story may steam a lot of you. Christian Children's Fund is set to undergo a name change, all for the sake of what they say is marketing. So guess which word they're removing from the title. I know you guessed it. The Christian name. First, they take the Christ out of Christmas. Then they take the Christian out of Christian's Children Fund. 
Then they'll take the Christ out of Jesus Christ. Why are you taking the Christian out of Christian Children's Fund? <laughs> the organization's new name is Child Fund International. How am I supposed to know what religion those childs are? <laughs> I don't want to find out I'm supporting a bunch of baby druids. <laughs> now, luckily, some people are doing the right thing, like former donor Liz Foreman. I'm not going to donate anymore because I believe in truth in advertising, and I believe um, that if you say you're Christian, that you should go forth under that banner. Exactly. Remember the words of Jesus. Suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me, but first, truth in advertising. <laughs> Nation, this name change is a threat to Jesus' PR, which was his number one priority. Why do you think he had 12 publicists? I mean, they're all sitting on one side of the table. Clearly, they know where the camera is. And as long as we're on the subject, folks, threat number four, casual Jesus. A church in England has unveiled a new statue of Jesus called Jesus in Jeans. This is a sacrilege. Jesus never wore jeans. Not even on casual Good Friday. <laughs> Plus, dress codes trickle down the org chart. If Jesus is in blue jeans, pretty soon, Pope Benedict will be rocking a Speedo and a beer miter. <laughs> Besides, if we have Jesus in jeans, soon the whole New Testament will get a casual makeover. Next thing you know, the Last Supper will be taking place at a drive-thru, and Judas will betray Jesus for 30 McNuggets. have reported that they've had a spiritual experience, an overpowering feeling that they touched God or another dimension of reality. Was that feeling a real connection with something unearthly or simply chemicals at play in your brain? This week, NPR's Barbara Bradley Haggerty is exploring the science of spirituality. Today, she hunts down the brain's God spot. If you're looking for evidence that religion is in your head, you need look no further than Jeff Schimmel. The 49-year-old Los Angeles writer was raised in a conservative Jewish home, but he never bought into God until after he was touched by a being outside of himself. Yeah, I was touched by a surgeon. About a decade ago, Schimmel had a benign tumor removed from his left temporal lobe. The surgery was a snap, but soon after that, unknown to him, he began to suffer many seizures. He'd hear conversations in his head. Sometimes the people around him would look slightly unreal, as if they were animated. Then came the visions. He remembers twice, lying in bed. He looked up at the ceiling and saw a swirl of blue and gold and green colors that gradually settled into a shape. He couldn't figure out what it was. And then, like a flash, it dawned on me, this is the Virgin Mary. And, you know, it's funny, I laughed about it because why would the Virgin Mary appear to me, a, a Jewish guy, laying in bed looking at the ceiling? She could do much better. Schimmel became fascinated with spirituality. He became more compassionate, less ambitious. So he wondered, could his new outlook have to do with his brain? The next visit to his neurologist, he asked to see his most recent MRI. My left temporal lobe looked completely different than it did before the surgery. Gradually, it had become smaller, a different shape, covered with scar tissue. Those changes had sparked electrical firings in his brain. Schimmel's doctor told him he had developed temporal lobe epilepsy. 
It's a disease that has fascinated doctors for centuries. Going back 2,500 years ago, Hippocrates wrote one of the first texts we have on epilepsy and named it on the sacred disease. Sacred, says neurologist Oren Davinsky, because the ancients thought that people we now believe had epilepsy were possessed by demons or blessed with divine messages and visions. Davinsky, who directs the Epilepsy Center at New York University, says neurologists suspect some religious giants were epileptics themselves. Did Paul hear Jesus on the road to Damascus, or was he experiencing an auditory hallucination? What about Joseph Smith and the two angels? Or Muhammad, Joan of Arc, and Moses. Do you see that strange fire? A bush that burns? Uh, it is on fire, but the bush does not burn. Assuming, for now, uh, a more rational scientific view, he was having a visual hallucination, and he heard God's voice. I am the God of thy father. It could have been God. It could have been a seizure. But one thing Davinsky does believe. Whatever happened back there in Sinai... Moses' experience was mediated by his temporal lobe. The temporal lobes run along the sides of the brain, and deep within them is part of something called the limbic system. This system handles not just sound, smell, and some vision, but also memory and emotion. Now, when people have a seizure in the temporal lobe, it's as if the normal emotions have an exclamation point after them, because so many nerve cells are firing in rhythm. People may hear snatches of music drawn from their memory bank. And in rare cases, interpret it as music from the heavenly spheres. Those people may see a glimpse of light and think it's an angel. These patients give us clues to what parts of the human brain are involved when all of us have a numinous experience. That's Jeffrey Saver, a neurologist at UCLA. He says when people with no brain dysfunction have numinous or spiritual experiences, it's the same limbic system being activated, but with the volume turned down. Saver's explanation made me wonder, if God uses the temporal lobe, can neurologists make God come and go at will? Well, they can make ecstatic seizures go away with surgery or medication, but what about summoning God? Could a scientist manufacture a spiritual experience by manipulating my temporal lobes? Ms. Haggerty, can you respond, please? Uh, I can barely... You're very muffled. I'm sitting in Michael Persinger's laboratory. Persinger, a neuroscientist at Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario, has pasted eight electrodes onto my scalp. He eases, of all things, a motorcycle helmet with its own sensors onto my head. He calls it the God Helmet. Okay, I'm getting a bias here. The helmet is supposed to stimulate my right temporal lobe with weak magnetic fields and create the illusion of God in my head. Well, not God exactly, but a sensed presence, a feeling that another being is in the room. Yeah, everything's ready to go. Persinger covers my eyes with goggles stuffed with napkins. I sink deeper into the threadbare, overstuffed chair, feeling like a teenager hanging out in someone's basement. He leaves me in the chamber and returns to the control room, where I've placed a recorder. It's recording. Good, thank you. For the next 30 minutes, I listen to magnetic fields shift over my skull. Occasionally, I report seeing images or a dark forest. It's kind of a roiling darkness, like a, a battle of darkness. Okay. It's off to my left. You've just reported the actions on your left, and now you are beginning to experience, and my compliments to you, what is called the, the black or the dark of the dark. Actually, I couldn't hear him say that. He was talking into my recorder in the other room. At one point, Persinger predicts I am right on the verge of feeling the sensed presence. But it never happens. Now, there were several times when Persinger predicted I'd see an image or a face, and I did. To Persinger, this is evidence that God and all spiritual experience is a product of your brain. What is the last illusion that we must overcome as a species, and that illusion is that God is an absolute that exists independent of the human brain and that somehow we are in his or her care. Well, believers are certainly going to take issue with that, and so do many scientists. So I put the question to NYU's Oren Davinsky. Does the fact that we can track spiritual feelings in our temporal lobe mean there's nothing spiritual going on? No. 
Think about a man and a woman who are in love, he says. They look at each other, and in all likelihood, something fires in their temporal lobes. However, does that negate the presence of true love between them? Of, of course not. When you get to spirituality, as a scientist, it really becomes extremely difficult to say anything other than it's possible. Remember Jeff Schimmel? The guy with temporal lobe epilepsy? He finds it hard to believe that his new faith and love for his fellow man come merely from an electrical impulse that's gone awry. But I'll tell you what the real bottom line is for me. I don't care where it comes from. I'm just a happier person. I'm a more decent human being because of it. Schimmel has taken up Buddhism to harness his spiritual life. Now Buddhist monks and other long-term meditators are coming under the gaze of brain researchers. Spiritual virtuosos. That's tomorrow's story. detective subjects his own faith in God to rough questioning. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Detroit Police Department veteran Joe Petricelli admitted today that he was forced to use every harsh questioning technique he knew in a confrontation with his own faith in God. According to Petricelli, his doubt concerning the Almighty was by far the toughest adversary he has ever faced. You know, and I was trying to put it together, but it just didn't add up. Petricelli has been put on a desk job by his precinct captain, who was quoted as saying, for him, the case has gotten too personal. Well, Redland for the Onion Radio News. Obama made the statement that America is not uniquely and only a Christian nation. There were no surprises about how the Christian community reacted. The fundamentalists, in holding with their predictable trend, abandoned analysis of Obama's statement. Instead, we saw the same kind of dull demagoguery that we've grown accustomed to from that group during this last decade. But other Christian leaders, well, they used Obama's comment to make the point that Christians in America shouldn't take their majority status for granted. North America is home to more than 8 million Muslims, for example. Their numbers are growing while the numbers of new Christian converts is at a decline. Unlike hellfire, paranoid pulpit preachers, progressive theologians are trying to understand the reasons for that trend. For example, they want to understand why a 30-year-old might join the Church of Scientology where that religion is based on the following beliefs. Here they are. An alien galactic ruler named Zeno flew thousands of cosmic aliens to Earth to colonize the planet. But galactic rulers with names like Zeno, well, they can't be trusted. So Zeno dropped all of his alien passengers into a volcano and blasted them with hydrogen bombs. Now the Scientologists tell us that the souls of those betrayed aliens inhabit our souls, and the only way to remove those aliens is through Scientology. 
They brag that they have 8 million followers worldwide. And so the question you have to ask is, why does a 30-year-old become turned off about Christianity to where Scientology looks like the wise alternative? Enlightened theologians are also trying to understand why Mooney converts have abandoned Christianity to hand over their worldly belongings to a convicted felon named Sun Yong Moon. He tells them to disregard the Bible and take directions only from him. The Moonies claim they have a worldwide following of about three million. Christian theologians who spend less time as demagogues in denial have the best chance of reversing the damage that's been done to their religion in this last decade. Dozens of books have been written by insightful Christian leaders who believe they understand what's threatening America's Christian majority. Here are a few of the ideas that those theologians want their brethren to consider. First, stop preaching politics from the pulpit and begin preaching the Gospels again. The success or failure of a church that's too intertwined with politics of the day is going to rise and it's going to fall with those same politics. Just look what's happened to the Republican Party. Distance the mainstream church further from the fringe that's become so closely associated with the events like murdering abortion doctors or even murdering each other when fellow parishioners were perceived to be too liberal. Encourage fundamentalists to accept people who are ideologically and culturally different from themselves. Focus more on the Beatitudes and less on brimstone. How about this? Return to the day when organized Christianity was prone to encourage peace rather than war. Return to the day when organized Christianity was more likely to identify with the least of our society rather than the vulgar affluence and power symbolized by the money machine megachurches that are now a Christian norm. And be more willing to adapt to the realities of a changing world, like the reality that if Christian leadership doesn't do a better job, a non-Christian American majority is almost inevitable, whether they like it or not. Well, I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord, but you don't really care for music, do you? Well, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall and the major lift, the baffled king composing constitutes a Bible-based marriage. And here's a little-known secret. Neither do Christians. And that's why the Lord has called upon me, America's best Christian, to teach all of you his definition of marriage. Pay close attention because he's rather inventive. In the beginning of time, say, 6,000 years ago, God created one man and one woman. They had two children, both had penises. You might inquisitively ask, Lord, if Adam and Eve only had boys, where did the grandchildren come from? Trust me, you're not going to like his reply. A Bible-based marriage is between one man, one woman, and the son she seduces after he's killed his only brother. A family that slays and lays together stays together. True story. Abraham, the father of three faiths, two of them total rubbish, married his sister. As if that wasn't sorted enough, slutty sister Sarah invited Abraham to have sex with her maid. Someone named Hagar. Such an appallingly butch name. A Bible-based marriage is between one man and his sister. And the help. Goodness me, Lord, the help? Doing the help? I don't even speak to mine. Wait, what's the Lord's favorite way to punish a man who rapes an unmarried virgin? Anyone? Marriage, yes. A Bible-based marriage is between one woman and her rapist. Muzzle call. 
Remember how God turned Lot's wife into a pillar of kosher salt? So a Bible-based marriage can sometimes be between one man and a kitchen condiment. Bon appétit! So what do you do if you run out of close relatives or servants to marry? Well, the rather crafty Lord has a fabulous tip. Just drive over to the nearest town and murder everyone who either has a penis or has seen one. Then just round up all the virgins who are left. Of course, you don't need to take a big truck if you try this and say, America. A Bible-based marriage is between one man, a gal who's kidnapped and raped right after her brother, father, mother, and slutty sister are slaughtered. Remember, in the Bible, it's not rape if the man says, I do. King David had a fabulous collection of wives and a harem absolutely chock full of athletic concubines whom the Lord had raped by David's son because the Lord was in a snit over some drama concerning that troublemaking tramp Bathsheba. A Bible-based marriage is between one man, a woman, another woman, yet another woman, a few more women, an adulterer, and a pack of raped whores. In a galling show of one-upmanship, David's son, King Solomon, had 700 wives. And because God loves to round up, 300 concubines, which are really just live-in whores. A Bible-based marriage is between one man and, frankly, enough booty to make a Mormon compound seem quaintly understaffed. So what do you do when you can't afford even one wife, much less a pack of in-house hookers, but you still have your little heart set on having a son? Well, the Lord shrewdly suggests that you inveigle a slave into violating your daughter. Voila! Problem solved. A Bible-based marriage is between one man, daddy's little girl, and the slave daddy hired to rape her. Try getting a Hallmark card for that. The whole concept of marriage apparently bored Bachelor Jesus to tears other than encouraging his buddies to abandon their wives. About all Jesus said on the subject was that once you do it, that's it, no running off to Babylon to get a divorce. So clearly, in the Bible, you can have as many wives as you want, just as long as you have them all at once. So let's recap the Lord's idea of the perfect marriage. It is between one man and his sister and her rapist, kitchen condiment, gal who's kidnapped and raped few more women, an adulterer and a pack of raped whores, 700 wives, 300 concubines, and the help, and a son who has murdered his brother. But it is not between one man and another man, because, well, that would be immoral. A new species design as demand for humans declines. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Representatives of the Lord Almighty gave the press a sneak peek today at a species prototype he is designing as a replacement for humans once their value eventually bottoms out. According to God's spokesman Eric Peterson, the human race's viable worth should remain stable for years to come, but the time to prepare for the inevitable is now. God is still very much behind the human race, but the, the Lord just wants a number of options on the table. The Onion Radio News has learned that the new species will have four legs, biodegradable fur, two vaginas, and shall be known to surviving humans as the mammoth. Tell me if there's something I can do. You're not going to want to miss what we have available at the brand new Best of the Left store. You can get all of our great designs, including some cool retro ones that no one's ever seen before, on all kinds of great cafe press apparel and other fun items they have available. If you prefer a cafe press alternative, we got you covered. Check out everything we have available at our Printfection store. Aside from all that fun stuff, we've got something really useful for you. We've just started a brand new podcast by mail service. 
So say you know someone, maybe even yourself, who loves this show or would love it, but they're just not tech-savvy enough to do the whole podcasting thing. They couldn't download it every week, not going to listen online. Give them a podcast-by-mail subscription, and they'll have the CDs of every edition sent right to their house every week. All this now available at the new store at bestoftheleft.com. Taking a semester to travel and focus on your writing? Not that unusual for a student at Brown University, but instead of studying comparative literature in Europe, Kevin Roos decided to go to Lynchburg, Virginia. He passed himself off as an evangelical Christian to blend in with students at Liberty University, the school founded by moral majority leader Jerry Falwell. Kevin Roos is back at Brown, and he wrote a book about his semester at Liberty called The Unlikely Disciple, a Sinner's Semester at America's Holiest University, and he's in our New York studios. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Jackie. First, the mechanics of this. You decided to go undercover, posing as an evangelical Christian, and I understand that you already had a book deal. So why couldn't you be honest? My goal was to see um, the real unfiltered uh, picture of life at Liberty University. The first time I met a group of Liberty students, I was a, a freshman at, at Brown, and I had had this ultimate secular liberal upbringing. My parents worked for Ralph Nader in the 1970s, and I had never really come into contact with conservative Christian culture. So when I met these Liberty students and started talking to them, it became clear very quickly that, that we had almost no way to communicate with each other. I think it was just as hard for them as it was for me. And so I wanted to investigate that and to see, you know, what, what are our differences? What do they believe? And then also, what do, we, what do we have in common? And to see if I could try to build a bridge between my world, uh, the world of the sort of the secular liberals, and the world of conservative Christianity at Liberty. Tell me about some of the classes that you enrolled in at Liberty, like History of Life and Evangelism 101. I enrolled in the entire, almost the entire core curriculum, the classes that every Liberty student is required to take. So Old Testament, New Testament, theology, and then as you mentioned, a history of life, which is a creationist biology course, and also Evangelism 101, which teaches you how to convert uh, non-believers. I remember walking into class uh, for the exam day for history of life and sitting down to the test and seeing a question that said, true or false, Noah's Ark was big enough to accomplish accommodate various species of dinosaurs. And so I, I was sort of taken aback by that. I, I decided to brown nose and go for the credit instead of uh, standing up for, uh, for evolution. But, um, but the classes on the whole uh, that I took were, were hard um, and also very informative, and I'm glad I took them. Now, no one knew that you were writing a book. They did know that you had come from Brown. You transferred to dorm 22 at Liberty. Tell me about dorm life there. Well, dorm life is vastly different from what I had experienced at Brown. For starters, there's Liberty's 46-page code of conduct, and it's called the Liberty Way, and it outlines a whole host of rules uh, and regulations concerning student life. So there's no drinking, no smoking, no R-rated movies, but also no dancing, uh, no cursing, and no hugs that last for longer than three seconds. I sort of felt like a uh, you know a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, and I, I wanted to. Try to follow all the rules, so I had to do some behavioral adjustments. I actually bought a self-help book for Christians called 30 Days to Taming Your Tongue. That's all about how to avoid cursing. You're supposed to say things like, uh, glory be and mercy. And so I took this advice and I walked around campus uh, for a couple of weeks sort of, you know, sounding like Beaver Cleaver. And, uh, and actually, Liberty students don't talk like that, of course. They say, you know, they just use the sort of radio safe uh, versions of the curse words, the nerf curses. And so they would look at me like, uh, who was this guy and what, uh, what strange isolated homeschool did he come from? Tell me what led you to every man's battle. Uh, Every Man's Battle is a strange uh, chapter in my book because it is Liberty's on-campus support group for chronic masturbators. And, uh, and so I decided to check it out uh, out of journalistic interest, I assure you. And it was uh, an incredible experience because on one hand, it's very bizarre and you have a bunch of male Liberty students sitting around a conference room table and talking sort of like, uh, you know, people who are at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings about, you know, it's been 16 days since the 
last time I uh, fell. That's the word they use is fell. You know, they're congratulating each other and, and coming up with various strategies to stop uh, touching yourself. But, you know, on another hand, it's really sort of compassionate. But um, I wish that these guys didn't have to be made to feel guilty. But I think given that they that they are guilty, I think this was a good way to cope with that. I want to know how this experience changed your own sense of faith and prayer. Well, I, I still do try to pray every day, and I do this because I think the process of praying changes me. Uh, Oswald Chambers, who's a Christian writer, he said that it's not so much that prayer changes things as that prayer changes me, and then I change things. And so I think that's going to be important for me to sit down every day and think about uh, the problems and the challenges facing the people in my life and, uh, and really trying to increase my own compassion that way. You left... Liberty University, without telling any of these people, your friends and your teachers, who you really were, although one or two people had suspicions, later, after you're back at Brown, you go back and you tell people the truth. What was that like? Oh, it was hard. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done because these had become some of my best friends. I, I sort of expected them to feel betrayed and, and to have to do a lot of apologizing. And what happened amazingly was that everyone forgave me immediately. It was unreal how quickly uh, their sort of surprise turned to real compassion and excitement. They were all excited about the book and excited that, you know, I had given liberty a fair look and an open-minded look instead of just doing sort of a drive-by you know article or something like that that I think they've had a lot of one of your friends there says all those chances you had Kevin to be saved and you didn't take it so the real regret is not that you wrote about them but that you that you didn't uh, go down that route and say the sinner's prayer right I mean they, they weren't angry they were just sort of uh, disappointed I guess in in they thought, given this semester with me, that they would have done a better job of uh, of converting me. And this has led to some uh, some funny encounters. Like at Christmas, one of uh, my Liberty friends calls me and he says, "I'm I'm doing some Christmas shopping and I have to get a present for my brother-in-law. He's unsaved. He's not a Christian, and I I don't know what to get him. Can you help me out?" Uh, so I've sort of become this you know concierge to the godless. <laughs> Uh, which I which I don't mind, which is great, but uh, also very strange. Kevin Roos, author of The Unlikely Disciple, A Sinner's Semester at America's Holiest University. Thanks for speaking with us, Kevin. Of course. Thanks for having me on. If I get drunk, well, I know I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man who gets drunk next to you. And if I heave up, yeah, I know I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man who's heavering to you. But Okay, look what we got here. The name of your book is Confessions of an Alien Hunter, A Scientist's Search for Extraterrestrial Life. Okay, you're an alien hunter. How many alien heads do you have up on the wall of your den? Anything? It's pretty bare, I have to say, Stephen. Not yet, not yet, but within two dozen years, that answer might change. Or within 2,000 years. Could you be. never know. Yeah, in which case, I'm going to be That's very disappointed. hopeful. It's yeah. a very hopeful thing to say. It's like saying, eventually, I will hunt that snipe. They may not, they may not exist. Well, In which case, your life is meaningless. <laughs> no offense, I'm just laying it out there, man. I, I, I'm glad you You could just be, you know, pissing in the wind here. Could be, Stephen, but look at it this way. There are a trillion planets in our galaxy. That's about the Says number. Says you. Well... <laughs> 
process. That's in your interest to think that. Yeah, maybe it is. But the astronomers, I have a lot of astronomers who are backing me up on that. Yeah. Okay. Now, most of them are going to be pretty worthless. Neptune, Mercury, pretty worthless. But in a trillion planets, some of them are going to be okay. Some of them are going to be something like Earth. And unless this is a miracle, if you think this is a miracle. I do think this is a miracle well, it, created in, by in God case, in you six right. days, my friend. <laughs> that's what I call a miracle, okay? That's one of the things that bugs me about this is why, why you know, science just continues to make mankind insignificant. I mean, it used to be we were, we were you know, just like Jerusalem was the center of the world on old maps, and then the Earth was the center of the universe, and then the sun was the center of the universe, and now, now the sun's just like this little G2 star out on the edge of this little middling little galaxy among hundreds of billions of galaxies in an endlessly expanding universe, which may or may not have been here for 14 billion years. Why, why search for another thing to bum me out? Yeah. Well, <laughs> If we're not the only intelligent life form... Yeah, well, alternative. The alternative to that is you're alone. That this is it. This is the best the universe has to offer. I think we're pretty good. <laughs> I am a huge... Sorry, sir. I'm not one of the blame humanity first crowd. Yeah. No. I'm a big fan going... of me. Yeah. Well, it... <laughs> well, that could be. I mean, it could be mm -hmm. that we are, as many of my neighbors think, the smartest things in the galaxy. Yeah. Could be. But that would make, you know, that would make this a miracle. Mm -hmm. This would make this a miracle. Or, so we, or we got there. here first. Maybe we just got here first. Could be, but the Maybe we're the first evolved or intelligently designed possible, creatures. Possible, but unlikely. Together. Look, the Earth, the Earth's one-third the age of the universe. Mm -hmm. The universe had 10 billion years without us, without the Earth, right? And do you think it was just sitting there doing nothing? Probably. No, it was waiting. Yeah. It was an expected, expectant mother yeah. <laughs> waiting for its child to come along. What, uh, what, okay, what happens if, if you're, what, what, how do you search? How do you search for we, the we use, Well, for one thing, we use big antennas. We do what Jodie Foster did in the movie Contact. We use big antennas. Act, yeah. Act and attempt to be attracted to Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. <laughs> That, that's probably too much. But too what much, we do, okay. yeah, well, no, we're using these antennas trying to pick up signals that might be washing over us as we sit here. So what, any nibbles? Well, you, well, this is one of those experiments where, you know, a nibble doesn't count. It's either it or it's not it, and so far, it's been not it. So what do you, what do you mean, like, a nibble doesn't count? Like, there's nothing they go, like, we're not sure what that is. We'd like to look at it again. And that doesn't count. In science, if you can't reproduce the result, it's not a result. Okay, it's, it's just, you know, that was interesting. It might tell you what the reaction of society might be because, you know, a lot of people hear about it and they so say, So what's, wow. what's an alarm? What, what's, what's an absolute? What's a yes, we've found them? You find a signal, you go back, you look an hour later, it's still there. You call up somebody at another observatory, maybe halfway around the world, say, you guys look. They look, they find the signal. If you get enough people doing that, then you can say, look. But what signal? Like, what, what, what would constitute a, a, a you know, howdy? From yeah. space. What, is, what, what are you expecting? What kind of intelligence are you expecting to encounter? Well, you're just looking for the kind of signal that transmitters make, not the kind of signal that nature makes, quasars, pulsars, that sort of thing. You're looking for the kind of signal that a television broadcaster Well, maybe they use quasars and pulsars to send signals. They're bad engineers if they do that, because uh, those signals are all over the band. They're, they're not, they don't have the signature of an artificial transmission. So that's what we look for. What they're saying, that's secondary. First, you find out that they're on the air, and then you can go back and pay attention to what, if anything, they might be telling us. What do you think these people are going to be like? Uh, I don't think they're going to be people, personally. Uh, that's just my point of view. But look, it seems to me you invent... Will they be attractive, like space... Uh, to somebody. Space ladies yeah. in bikinis, like, uh, <laughs> like in the movies I watched when I was a child with green skin? Was yeah. that gonna... Yeah, well, you can hope for that. But yeah. uh, I, I think... Have you seen Star Trek? That's a great movie. Yeah. Look, look at this. You, you invent radio, you go on the air, and then, you know, 200 years later, you invent artificial intelligence. So that's a short period of time. I think the chances are not insignificant that they've gone beyond biology. They're not little soft, squishy guys, but they're some sort of artificial sentience, artificial intelligence. They're robots? Well, robots, robots, robots have arms and legs. Something that thinks doesn't have to have arms and legs. Uh, people with arms and legs sometimes don't think either. <laughs> right here. <laughs> Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. You may have noticed that the Best of the Left podcast has begun to run 
advertisements. And I just wanted to take a moment to thank you, the audience, for helping to support the show by supporting our advertisers. You helped to make these advertising campaigns a success for not only the advertisers, but also this show. Now, I just wanted to throw out there that if you have a product, business, or service that you'd like to advertise on the Best of the Left, we are now and will be accepting new advertisers. And of course, listeners of the show who want to advertise will get a nice discount. If you're interested, simply write me an email to j at bestoftheleft.com. If, if someone is gay, you can't force them to be straight. They're straight, you can't force them to be gay. You can't force people to be something they're not. But some people try anyway. Now we got a church in Connecticut who's going to try to drive the gayness out of someone with an exorcism. Wow, is this a stupid idea. But the only thing dumber than the idea is how it looks. So get a load of this, and I feel so bad for this kid in this tape. Get a load of how they're trying to convert this kid into being straight. Fox News Channel's Gloria Perez went to Bridgeport today to try and ask Manifested Glory Ministries about what we see on the tape. It is a frantic scene, a teen writhing as the adults around him implore homosexual demons to get out. Right now in the name of Jesus, For 20 minutes, it continues with the boy in a near seizure, even vomiting. By the looks of it and the repeated references to his sexuality, it appears to be a gay exorcism. But to be sure, we went to Bridgeport today to ask about the video. So when we heard the prophet Patricia McKinney and her husband, church overseer Calvin McKinney, on their weekly radio show, we went to see them at the local radio station. She wasn't much interested in talking. Don't we have no one to bring. How do we to bring you? Do not follow. Do not come where we're at. And look for no interview. Well, how else are we supposed to get in well, I'm telling you no. The only hint of a comment was her telling me the ritual shown in the video is just one part of their ministry. Working out of this corner business unit in the industrial part of the city, the Manifested Glory Ministry website lists no specific denomination. But as long as the McKinney's are not talking, others say the video is speaking for itself. I was horrified. Robin McHalen runs a mentoring program for gay teens and says she knows of five others in Connecticut who have been subjected to demon casting. What really freaked me out was that those people that did that to that child weren't doing it because they were trying to hurt him. They thought they were trying to help him, and I think what they did was murder his soul. Lori Perez, Fox 61 News at 10. The church has recently taken down its YouTube account, but the video is still posted on other sites. Yeah, like this one. Uh, yeah. I mean, come on, you got a gay uh, exorcism, we're not going to play it on the Young Turks, please. Uh, look, um, I, I think the lady at the end went a little far with the murdering his soul and such, but uh, the idea of doing this, uh, casting out homosexual demons, that makes me so mad. You know, Jesus, man, you want to talk about messing with someone's psychology. That poor kid doesn't know what's going on. I mean, look at him. He thinks it's real. I mean... It's amazing what religion does to your head. Whether it's a cult or it's an organized religion or whatever, that kid really thinks that there's an exorcism going on. He's writhing around. He's having near seizures. He's vomiting. I mean, if they tried that shit on me, right? I don't know. Then I guess they'd have to convert me to being gay instead of being straight, right? They're like, I'm going to cast out the heterosexual demons in you. I wouldn't be like, right? But that shit gets in your head. And so he, can't, you know, he grew up in it probably. Mm -hmm. So he thinks that's what's happening. You know how bad that, what kind of psychological damage is going to do that kid? I mean, look, here's where you know you're going in the wrong direction. When someone says, the prophet McKinney would like to do an exorcism on you. That's when you run for the hills. Okay, prophet. And they're trying to get an interview with this lady. You don't understand. She's the prophet McKinney. Oh, please. Prophet, please. The only question, I mean, the, I mean, the question that should be asked, and maybe this will prove the point of people who who are disagreeing with what they are doing to this kid. Walk to the lady, prophet. Did it work? Is the kid straight? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, and then at least they'll let them think about it too, and then maybe everybody figures this shit out for real. 
No, but they won't. You know they won't. He, no, he continues to struggle with the demons inside him. Because, you know, if you have certain feelings one way or another, no, one and, way is fine. The other is demons. No, no. And if can. anything, that experience might even freak him out to the point where he won't admit to being gay at this point. He'll, he'll say that it worked. Yeah, of course. I mean, he's a kid. He doesn't know, right? I mean, he's a little grown up, but... Uh, and God, and they'll make him feel sick about who he is, right? And then he'll have to conceal it for all this time. He'll have to hate him. So many people I've seen, when they talk about how they came out, whether they're Republican politicians or whoever they might be, well, the one thing they say that really gets me is they say, I, I thought I was a bad person. And because I had these feelings, they had me convinced that I was, you know, that I was evil and sinful and that I was a bad person. To put that kind of shit on somebody, you know, and then you say, oh, no, no, it's okay, it's a religion. Screw that, man. I got no patience for that. Thanks for listening, everybody. So we have very exciting news today. But first, the story so far. So over the past few weeks or a couple of months now, the structure of the show has changed. And here's why. So thanks to the terrible economy, thanks to total lack of oversight and deregulation brought to us by the previous couple of administrations, the stock market uh, took a crash, which horribly affected the nonprofit organization I worked for, uh, well, still work for, and... That financial situation caused my hours to be cut, which caused me to have a little bit of extra free time and left me with the decision of whether or not to go find another um, part-time job or to try to turn this podcast into a little bit of a side business. Since I chose the latter, the first thing I did was upped the output of the show. So now you're getting regularly two episodes a week instead of just one, as it was before, since I have a little bit of extra time to work on it. In return, uh, after explaining that, I asked that if you had the ability and desire to become a member of the show, you could join and uh, donate as little as $5 a month just to help keep the show going, help keep me afloat a little bit, and in return, I would continue pumping out these shows at double speed, basically. And, of course, all along, I've been looking for ways to better serve these members because, you know, as it stands, they're really just donating out of the goodness of their hearts, knowing that they're helping to keep the show going strong and not really getting anything extra in return. But today, that changes. I'm very excited to announce the creation of the brand new feature for members only, which is the best of the left raw feed. And now let me explain what that is. First of all, by the very nature of this show, you know, we do two episodes a week. It's put together and edited nicely. Each week is a collection of themed clips. And so by the very nature of the show, stories that you hear on the show are often days, if not weeks old, because, you know, let me let you in on a little secret. Like today, you just heard uh, an episode all about religion. Well, all of those people talking about religion didn't all talk about it just in the last week. You know, I had some of those clips in the can for a little while now. So they're a little bit out of date. That's just how it happens. So the one gigantic hole in the podcast that I've always wished I could fill, you know, in this new media landscape where everything moves at the speed of Twitter our show's just being left in the dust. And that's where the raw feed comes in. If you're interested in getting the same high-quality clips that you get from this show, but you want to get them as they happen, that's the raw feed. And not only do you get these clips, but because the clips will only be coming out one at a time instead of grouped together in a themed show, you'll also be getting the videos that go along with it. Because after all, a lot of the clips we get are from... Countdown with Keith Olbermann, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Young Turks, The Daily Show, The Colbert Report, and maybe even a few others and, you know, a YouTube clip every once in a while. Now I have the ability to send out the video files through the raw feed as it happens, or at least as I come across them. 
So this feature is already available to current members and will be made available to anyone who wants to sign up for membership for as little as $5 a month. Now, of course, I've said all along that I was never going to turn this show into a paid subscription show. You're never going to have to give a single cent in order to listen to the show just as you know it now. Consistently posted, high-quality, themed episodes, great clips, great music, all that stuff continues exactly the same way. If you don't want to become a member, nothing changes for you. And the raw feed, it is not a replacement for the show. It's not better, it's not worse, it's just different. It's a different service, serves a different purpose in a different way. So there you go, that's the raw feed, available to members immediately. It's available now to all new members who sign up for as little as $5 a month. Of course, some like to go above and beyond. All the details for that are on the donation page at bestoftheleft.com. And now finally, just to wrap things up, I want to change gears like you've never heard someone change gears before. I wanted to have a little bit of fun with audio today because a few months ago, it might have been a year ago by now, I had this um, kind of humorous realization about one of the songs that was used in today's show, and I wanted to share that realization with you. And since I do an audio podcast, I can actually do it in a fun way. So have a listen to this, and um, I'll be back with you in a minute. Now, I just have to ask, is anybody else enjoying the irony of that as much as I am, that Van Morrison would make a song talking about how he's being lifted up by the Lord, and he would just flat out rip off one of Elvis's songs talking about how he's burning up, lusting after pretty ladies, that sort of thing? I don't know. I, I find something particularly delicious about that. I, I came across that, uh, like I said, about a year ago. I heard the Elvis song on the radio, and I thought, wait a second, that sounds incredibly familiar. Where did he rip that off from, or vice versa, and did a little bit of mental backtracking, and, and finally, you know, it might have been 30 minutes later, I had a eureka moment, and I said, yes, I have it, and I, I totally figured out that those songs sound identical. It's pretty amazing how often that happens, actually, in, in, in music. And people who are, you know, really into music and talk about, you know, who's who's truly great and who just sounds good. Um, you know, they, I think, will often define the greats as the ones who actually don't steal from people. Although that's not necessarily true, but um, but it's incredible how often you will hear music and realize that it was basically stolen from, you know, Elvis or the Beatles or the classics like that. I know, not very political, but I find that stuff interesting. So anyways, uh, that's it for today. Got to go through uh, the spiel here. Obviously, what you're going to want to do is stay connected with the show on Twitter and Facebook. Also, subscribe to our newsletter. You can be notified of every show that comes out or just be reminded to vote at Podcast Alley. And speaking of which, let me remind you to go vote at Podcast Alley. We're in the top 10 and want to secure our slot there. 
Also, leaving us reviews at iTunes helps us promote the show a lot. Uh, it gets more eyes to see us in the iTunes Music Store. Links to all that stuff are on the website. If you're interested in getting the show on your smartphone, downloaded uh, directly from the internet without having to sync with your computer, go to stitcher.com and look up the show there. Also, visit the show notes on the blog where you will find all of the sources for the show and the links to all the music we use, including Full Force Gale. And I'll go ahead and throw in a link to the Elvis song, Burning Love, as well. You can download them both and, and have a fun party trick for people. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay. This has been the Best of the Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend thanks to our members from bestoftheleft.com. Thought, thought,